Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Matthew 5, picking up where we left off. Actually, I'm going to go back one verse um, because I think the chapter break on this was a little weird. In chapter 4, verse 25, it says, Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And then the first sentence of our chapter says, And, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So we have, in the book of Matthew, we're talking about kingdom as a quick review. Chapter 1 was the kingly heritage of Jesus. Chapter 2 was homage being given to the king. Chapter 3, there is John the Baptist heralding the arrival of the king. And in chapter 4, we saw the ruler of this world challenging the eternal king. Um, and the eternal king uh, cleaning up the floor with him. Uh, and the word of God. In Matthew 4, 23... Jesus starts traveling the region and stopping into synagogues to teach the word in these different synagogues. And the way the synagogue system was set up, he could do that. Um, but when the crowds get bigger than the synagogues, he had to have a solution for that. Because when you don't all fit in the building anymore, you have to find other places to teach the word. Um, and, and his message in chapter 4 was 417. And this is a a key verse. It is the same thing that John the Baptist said. John the Baptist gets taken away by Herod. Jesus shows up in, in chapter 4, verse 17, and he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, instructing people um, about the kingdom of heaven. And then he preaches the kingdom of God has arrived, calling people to the kingdom. And then he heals all kinds of t sicknesses, which are freeing people from things that would keep them out of the kingdom. So if these things are dominating their life, he took away that domination um, be it sickness or demon possession, and he freed people up to be in there. So here we are at the beginning of this chapter where multitudes are following him, which, which makes total sense um, because they are following him. But in the first verse, he sees the multitudes and he goes up on a mountain and he was seated. When he was seated, his disciples came to him. So right away, there's this dividing between the multitudes and his disciples. And they're not the same thing. Multitudes will follow people because they want something. Disciples follow people because they want to learn something. And they want to, uh, you know, so there's, there's this different idea of what people are looking for from Jesus, even right up here at the beginning of his ministry. Um, the seeing the multitudes is a recognition that there needs to be a movement. Like when there's too many people and you can't fit, Jesus is seeing that situation and responding to it by changing the location. So we're about to dig into the first of five teachings that the book of Matthew is structured around. There's five major like sermons that Jesus gives, and after each one, Jesus does things that reinforce that sermon. Uh, the first one's called the Sermon on the Mount. The reason is because he went up on a mountain. So the verse one here is what, where we get the name for the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and in the Sermon on the Mount are the Beatitudes, uh, which are attitudes that we're supposed to be, be attitudes. Um, I don't know if it's that simple, but in the English it just works that way. 
The word disciples there is the first use we see in the Bible of disciples, at least in the Greek. Uh, and it's Mathetaeus. Um, I think it's interesting that Matthew uses a word that sounds like his name. So I don't know if that's something, but, you know, these are his Mathetaeus that come to him. Um, and it's anyone that wants to learn from Jesus. Disciples aren't uncommon. Um, when, when people say things that folks are astonished by, there is a sense that rabbis that brought light to the scriptures to people would be called lights. And in fact, some of the students in the first century would call their rabbis lights to the world because they revealed what the scripture said and made it clear, and they appreciated that about them. So likely this is a broad sense of the term disciples, not just the four fishermen that he grabbed in the last chapter, but anyone that was wanting to follow or learn more about these sayings would have come up or approach Jesus on the mountain. Um, <clears throat> the other thing, when they say mountain here, that's a relative term. It, and in America, that's weird for us because we think of the Rocky Mountains with ice on the top and that sort of thing. There are no Rocky Mountains in the Middle East. In fact, by the Sea of Galilee on the west side, there are two rocky embankments that are there. And if you speak from between or on top of those, it, there's like acres of land that you can hear super clear. It's a natural amphitheater. And it directs the sound inward because the two rocky banks are pointed like this. It's like a giant, huge uh, geographical speaker, almost like God made this spot for Jesus. And Jesus goes to it because it's time. Um, Luke 16 said that this sermon that's about to be given in Luke 6, verse 17 he says the disciples and the great multitude heard this next sermon. So there's people that read Matthew and think that this is just for the disciples. Uh, it's not. It's just the, uh, the disciples came to him. But broadcast-wise and, and supported by Luke, everyone could hear him say this. But his disciples came close to him when he did. Um, that said, there are kind of two groups here. So he's seated. This is traditional for teachers. Um, we still use this phrase when we say a judge comes into the courtroom and they are seated. They're a seated judge. And that phrasing comes all the way back from the first century. Um, when at, In university, we had department chairs. So you get the seat, and that seat is the seat of respect and honor. Uh, we still use that language today. So Jesus was seated, which adds gravitas to the moment. He's about to say something. Verse 2 supports that too. Then he opened his mouth. Matthew could have said, then he said, but he doesn't say that. He said he opened his mouth. Um, in the Greek, that gives a connotation that this is a significant thing that's going to be said. It's a very specific phrase. And there's two elements to uh, he opened his mouth. One is that it's a phrase used for the outside voice. He's about to talk super loudly. So there's ways you talk when you're one-on-one -on -one with people. There's ways you talk when you're out in a crowd. So opening the mouth has this sense of vocal energy, earnest, declarative sense that he's about to say something important. The second element to opening his mouth is that it's about the person. There's a, again, it's, it says he said, but it's like he says it from an open heart or from a place of no barriers. There's no mystery that's going to happen here. Um, it, Jesus is speaking directly from his heart and he's speaking to the crowd because he's got something to say. And that's when that phrase gets used. There's not a good English translation for it. I suppose the best you could come up with is he opened his mouth. Um, but it has to do a lot with the person saying it, the way in which they're going to open themselves up to people, 
um, and that, that, that largesse that he's going to speak with. It says he taught them saying, so the teach there is exactly what we think. Uh, in the English, the element of the word taught that's interesting is that it's in the imperfect tense, which means it's past, present, and future. It's not the normal Greek word for teaching in the present tense. Or in this case, Matthew should be using the past tense. He taught them, past tense. Uh, but it's not he taught them. It's he teaches them is a better translation. But it, I think in the English, we don't use that. Um, but Matthew was a scribe and a record keeper. He was trained in exacting, uh, amount, you know, to keep track of the taxes for the Romans. Uh, he was totally qualified to record an entire sermon. And again, a skill that's lost today because we just have recorders and we don't learn this skill. But Matthew was trained in hearing people and scribing what they would say. Uh, so this is something that Matthew was perfectly qualified to do uh, and keep track of. When Luke records this in his gospel, he's doing it from witnesses that were there. Matthew's doing it as a first person writing down what he said. Um, and so when he says he opens his mouth and he taught them, uh, again, I think it's really interesting that, that there's a summary of how Jesus taught, how he teaches, and how he's going to teach. So Matthew's kind of saying this is the kind of thing that Jesus teaches in the imperfect sense. Um, it's what his disciples were supposed to look like, so we're going to spend more time with it. Um, <laughs> this is how we're supposed to live and look, uh, and I think it's important for us to absorb these things and soak on them. So I'm breaking my one chapter rule today, and we're just going to do this first part. <clears throat> one other thing before we get into the, all the blessings. When he starts each sentence with blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, that's an oratorical skill that still gets used today. Like if you want to get people's attention, you can do that. The word are there in your Bible should be in italics. It doesn't exist in the Greek. It's not there. So you can go through and cross them all out because I actually like the translation better. Blessed, poor in spirit. Um, it's not that. It's not that these situations like. It's just a different way to hear it, but it's in a much broader sense of it, and it brings the, the contrast in oratorically. Blessed the poor in spirit. Blessed the, those that mourn. Blessed the meek. Um, and, and he's trying to say like these things that we normally think are bad are actually things that in the kingdom of God, there's a contradiction there. And living in that contradiction is part of being part of the kingdom. A kingdom that doesn't care about this earth, there's going to be contradictions between us and this earth and the things that are there. So we see that thing. I'll read the whole thing to start us off. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they obtain mercy. Blessed the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Beginning and end, theirs is the kingdom of heaven in verse 3. Great is your reward in heaven in verse 12. Uh, and even ver for theirs is the kingdom of heaven in verse 10 is bracketing this in two different brackets. First, there are four blessings that are in the poetic form. And that's bracketed by kingdom of heaven in verse 3 and kingdom of heaven in verse 10. 
Um, but if you take the other pieces, the rest of this, this section or passage, um, there, are, there are dispositions that are here, and there's actually 12 dispositions, but we'll get into that in a second. Um, we have be attitudes. Uh, these are things we are supposed to be um, because this is what is in the kingdom. So I think that's why they added the word are. Blessed the poor in spirit. We're supposed to be poor in spirit because there's a blessing in doing that. But the question is, what does poor in spirit look like and how do we do that? Um, but we are supposed to be seeking or going after that thing. Jesus is talking to a crowd of people who don't understand what the kingdom is yet. So this is his first introduction to it. And he is asking them to weigh it out. Remember, he has already asked them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. So he's already asked them to turn from their sin. And immediately after that, the next word that comes out of his mouth is blessed. So there's the, this idea that God flips everything. This isn't a to-do list of things to do. Every other religion has a list of things to do, which in a busy life, that just gets tedious. <laughs> but all of these are things we're supposed to be, not things we're supposed to do, or things that happen to us, not things that we initiate. So it becomes, in Jesus doing this, even in contrast to Judaism, it's the first way of life that doesn't have obligation attached to it. The only obligation is to repent, get rid, and walk away from a sinful life. And in that, there's a blessings that come in a natural progression or maturity over time that happens in the faith. And at some level, God's work in our life is in a progressive order from 3 to 12. Actually, and I think this is why Matthew structured it this way, three to nine actually has a progressive order. Not everybody's going to get persecuted. But there is a progression there that these things are conditional. It's impossible to mourn if you're not poor in spirit. And, and we'll kind of walk through these a little bit. Not as a rule that you have to do one or the other, or that being poor in spirit suddenly goes away when you have mercy. I think these things build on top of each other more like a pyramid than a staircase. Um, so there's nine blessings where it says, blessed, blessed are. Um, Matthew's already trained us in, right? When we were in the first chapter, he pointed it out that there was 14, 14, 14. So Matthew is a geek on the numbers. And there's no, I don't think there's any accident here. When you take the number nine, it's three times three, which is divine completeness. Let's say you don't like multiplying and you want to add. Seven, divine perfection is with two is confirmed. This is divine perfection confirmed. Um, and again, Matthew taught us to start looking for these things. Uh, there are 12 statements. Nine of them are blessed are. One of them is re rejoice. And then there are two that are you are. These would be 12 statements. The number 12 has to do with governing. So if we're going to govern our lives, these are 12 statements by which we can do that. Only one of them is a commanded action. So you're supposed to repent from the last chapter. And in this one, the only real command here is to rejoice. So we're supposed to actually take the action of putting on joy uh, when we do that. So 417, repent, and then in this chapter we get rejoice. Um, we're called towards something, not away. I think for me and my walk, this is a big deal. When I walk away from sin, a lot of times Christians spend a lot of their time rejecting, speaking out against, getting anxious and worried and worked up about when other people are still sinning. But we're not called to do that. We're called to be set apart towards a kingdom that looks like this. So the blessings of the walk are things Satan would love to keep us away from. If he can just keep us poor in spirit forever, 
and never move through some of these other things, he can cripple our walk and we can be infants for a long time. Or like Paul says, you're still drinking the milk when you should be eating the grown-up food. So the word blessed here are things that we want or things that we should be pursuing versus the things that we're walking away from. We're supposed to put our focus on these things we're supposed to do. Blessed is the word makarios, which means fully happy. Not entertained, but happy in a much deeper, prolonged peace kind of way. You are overall a well-off person, makarios. Um, They're all in the present tense. These aren't things that are going to happen later in your life. These are things that happen right now in the Christian walk in the kingdom. So notice the present tense on there. Jesus promises that you are blessed if you do these things, that that happens right now. So it isn't the result of the world to get blessed. It's the result of God and living God's way that gets blessings. And our blessing comes from salvation, not from the world. So it is when the world makes us poor in spirit, then we are blessed in doing that. The last word of the Old Testament, we shouldn't ignore this either. When Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was repeating what John said as he took over John's ministry as he went to prison. The first original statement from Jesus starts with the word blessed. The last word of the Old Testament is cursed. So it's when he comes up and he steps up with his own, like he opens his mouth to speak, and that's the first word that comes out. Uh, It's an interesting contrast with the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you do everything that you said to do in the Old Testament, and you come to the realization that you are bankrupt. You can't follow the law. You can't do it all. But then Jesus said, actually, that position of recognizing that you're poor in spirit, you have nothing to offer in spirit, you're broke when it comes to spiritual things. That contrast that he puts out here with the blessed are is absolutely establishing kind of a a, a new kingdom, but fulfilling the law itself. The point of the law was for us to see that and to start us off in that place. So verse 3 is, Blessed are the blessed the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, poor here means to crouch, as in begging, uh, putting us in a position of beggars, lowly. We have nothing to offer. The recognition of the believer, like first you repent from sin, but then you wake up, your eyes are open, and you realize that all of your life prior to repentance <clears throat> didn't add up to much. So you had a lot of things the world thought they were giving you, but at the end of the day, when it comes to spiritual things, you've got nothing. And that recognition is the foundation for all the other Beatitudes. You can try all you want, but at the end of the day, God's waiting for us to say, you know what, Lord, I've tried everything and I'm broke. I got nothing for you. I have nothing to offer at this point. I'm poor and I'm begging and I'm crouching. In my spirit, I recognize I have nothing there. So every other religion, this is another contrast with other religions, every other religion sets the goal and happiness at the end of the works. If you do all these things, you will end up happy. Christianity does the exact opposite. When you realize you've got nothing, you get everything at the beginning. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to do anything to be a full inheritor of the kingdom of God. It's total reverse from every other world religion. When we get to that point, you can, you can even do a prayer of salvation and then start doing works. And you and God's just kind of, I think, lovingly waiting for you to get over your works. It's not the stuff you do that brings that grace to your heart. 
you know, so you get that initial high when you first get saved, you start doing a bunch of stuff and you wake up and go, man, I can't get to that place again. What's going on? And God kind of, I think, responds to that and is like, amen, finally you've gotten to that point where there's nothing you can do that adds to your joy. Your spirit is, is bankrupt without me. So this is the first step in the faith. And everybody can do this. It's not an exclusive faith. It's not just for the inner circle red robe wearing people that show up to all the right rituals. This is for every single person that repents. They can turn to God and beg him for spiritual life. And, and that point of being poor in spirit is huge. Another conditional state for all the rest. When I recognize I'm poor in spirit, it's because I've detached from the world and nothing the world had to offer was worth anything. When I detach from the world, I, add, I, I attach myself to the kingdom of God. It brings us to verse 4. It sets us up. So now with each of these, I'm thinking, okay, so as a church, how do we respond to that? And I think one thing we need to recognize as a church, like people that are hopefully more mature in their faith, is we have to be ready to welcome people into our fellowship that are pretty rough around the edges. People that are poor in spirit, people that are broke, people that have not beaten their sin yet. And we have to be willing to just show those people love and acceptance because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They own it just as much as we do because we have the same amount to offer God when it comes to getting the kingdom of heaven. So for us to judge people that are not at that point, I think really sets us back. So blessed are those who mourn is the second step. One of the things that happens when you recognize how spiritually bankrupt you are is that you start to mourn or grieve. And again, all of these words are in the broad sense. Uh, this is the strongest temp, uh, sense of the Greek word. It, it is much more than just grieving a human life. It's a spiritual grief. It's a grief of existence. Uh, those who mourn are mourning much more than just a person dying, right? Because even non-believers have people die and then they mourn their death. They grieve death. But this is a much deeper, stronger sense than that. For the believer, when you realize that you've lived X number of years of your life and you've offered, you've, you've produced nothing of spiritual value and you recognize that poor in spirit, then you start to regret the life that you had before you realized that. You start to mourn your life. So the mourning, I think, that we're talking about here is that we were dead in sin and we're actually mourning our own dead life. Oh my goodness. Like, I've just wasted so many years. So you, you find that you can't do something. God says, welcome in. And then you look around and you see how bankrupt you are and how, how lost life you have. So, again, this idea of sorrow is not new in this. Uh, there are other places in the New Testament that work this idea of sorrow into our repentance. For instance, 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 7, verse 10. For godly, for godly, those that are godly, sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. We're not supposed to get rid of our sorrow. Like that idea that, man, I wasted my time. Man, I wasted last week. Man, that watching that TV would just ate my life, and I mourn the loss of life that I've given to this world. Um, we're supposed to actually hang on to that because <laughs> it's supposed to be part of our salvation. Um, and that idea that we've wasted time and that we grieve that time is something that God's doing to make a difference in our heart. Um, we see that our own sin is responsible for killing Jesus on the cross. So part of what we mourn here, too, is we mourn the consequences of sin. 
is death. And we mourn that death that we've caused. So not only do we have nothing to offer God, I know this is kind of a downer, but then we realize our sin has actually caused Jesus pain and agony on the cross and it's caused us pain and agony and other people pain and agony. So if we can realize that, then there is a point where those who mourn need to be comforted. In the kingdom of God, we may get people into our fellowship that start saying, man, I wasted so much of my life. And our job is to comfort those people because part of how God's going to work is through his church. God can bring comforting directly, and he does. And he also asks us to be a reflection of him. And I think for the church, we need to recognize that we're going to have people that are going through that phase or that part of their spiritual walk. And our job there isn't to say, yeah, that was a waste of time and actually drive home the stake of that grieving. But ours is to comfort them and say, you know what? God forgives all things. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He doesn't hold that stuff against you. It's gone. So Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. When we turn from the flesh towards the spirit, there is that sense that we feel a mourning, a sorrow that comes in. And it's okay. And we're never supposed to let it go. So again, we don't do this and then move past it. We do this and we hold on to it through our whole spiritual walk. So church, we don't beat ourselves up. We don't mourn our stuff. And by the way, this is one of my pet peeves. When you go to like a thing and then all the speakers are giving testimonies of all their horrible rotten sins and stuff like that. But they never include somebody where their horrible rotten sin is that they wasted a day. Right? And that should be our level of mourning. We all have that. It's not just the people that were addicted to drugs. It's people that were also addicted to Star Trek The Next Generation. And they just wasted life, right? So those, or, or for, for me, computer games. Like, I don't even want to know my grand total time on those things. Um, but you start to think, okay, I got I to gotta get past that. But you're on step two. Spiritually, that's a good thing. God loves you is the answer to that. Step three, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. On this one, Jesus actually quotes Psalm 37, 11, and he adds the word blessed. So he takes a verse that the Jewish people in the audience would recognize. Remember, he's in Galilee. A lot of these people are not Jewish. They're Gentiles. Um, oh, and by the way, like tonight on Sunday, we're doing Ruth chapter one. And one of the things Ruth does is she says, it grieves me. Like, she's really sad that as she turns back towards the kingdom of God, that she, she's got to let go these two women that are in her life. And she's mourning those things she's letting go, which is a different, I'm sorry, I'm back on verse four again. That's a, that's a third way to look at it. We grieve our past wasted life. We grieve that Jesus needed to die on a cross for us. But we also sometimes grieve the things we let go. Like, there's a part of us that kind of misses or mourns that stuff that used to give us, like, fake life in our old lives and we kind of or those old friends we used to have that don't want to be friends with us anymore because we're following the Lord like that sort of thing I think is one of those mornings anyways blessed are the meek so you're poor in spirit you got nothing to offer God you are mourning or sad about what you've done wrong uh, and then the result of those two things should be a meekness like we don't put ourselves over other people we realize we're nothing uh, for they shall inherit the earth. The point of being meek isn't to get the earth. That's not the point. <laughs> it's that we are inheritors of the earth. So, and this is future tense, not present tense. So the inheriting means that there is some sort of passing on of something that will happen in the future. 
uh, we will be with Jesus when he returns and we'll be part of his kingdom. So meek there is the word praus. Um, I don't know if the Greeks pronounce it that way, but I do. Uh, it's a conceptual term, like love. There's a ton to it. It's way bigger than just one word. Uh, in the English, a lot of times with meek, we think of somebody who's like passive or a whipping dog gets meek. They put their tail between their legs and we, that's the word meek. In the Greek, it's a lot bigger word and it has much more to do with a person who's extremely powerful that submits themselves to someone because they can. So meek is used in the sense of a, a, a servant saying to their master, I'm just going to submit to you and I'm going to give up my own will, which means I have a will, and I'm going to give that will over to God. So that meekness has to do with a acceptance of God's rule or a reliance on God versus our own strength. But it doesn't mean you don't have strength, right? So I think it's important to understand how Jesus meant this versus the connotation it's taken on in the English. Uh, they have a word for, for, for the kind of, we think of meek as synonymous with weak. And the Greek has both words, and Jesus doesn't use the word weak. He uses the word meek, which means a very different thing. Um, meek in the Greek is then power under control. Think of it like this. A lion is really powerful, but when they've been trained by their master, they do wonderful things. And that lion has been meeked to its master. It's not that the lion lost any strength at all. In fact, it might even exercise for its master and become stronger. Um, but blessed the meeked or those who have been meeked to the Lord God Almighty. If we're poor in spirit and we mourn our thing, then we turn everything over to the Lord and we just give it all to him. Lord, I have nothing. You can have whatever you think I have that's worth anything. Um, here we get the disposition of the broke mourning person recognizing they can't beat sin. In fact, being poor of spirit and then being mourning that sin, sometimes that grief might be that we keep returning to sin over and over and over again. And as a believer, that is an important phase in our faith because we eventually realize we can't beat sin. We keep getting in the same situation. We keep having the same kinds of problems with people. And there's a point at which that prayer of meekness says, Lord, I've tried so many times, I just need you to take care of it. I need you to create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit in me. Um, because there's this thing with humanity, Proverbs 26, 11, As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats their folly. Right? This is the nature of humanity. We keep going back to it. Uh, 2 Peter 2.22, but as it happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his vomit, and then Peter adds this, a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. That's sin. So just because we've repented, we've become poor in spirit, and we mourn, doesn't mean we still don't need to be meeked. We need to understand that our life under our own control will keep taking us back to those things that make us mourn and those things that make us poor in spirit. Uh, we have to understand that. So we start asking God, help beat this sin, take over my life. Lord, take the temptation away. Make it so I don't even react in the temptation. Like, just change me, Lord, because I can't do it. When we do that, when we become an heir of Christ or God, we, we then suffer with him so that we're glorified together. And glorified together, Romans 8, 17, is to become an inheritor with Jesus Christ, right alongside him. 
So once we give our will over to God, which I think happens after repentance, you can repent and regret and keep going back to sin over and over again. Satan loves that stuff because then he, the accuser comes in and says, you didn't really repent because you're still sinning. You keep going back to it. And the accuser just puts that voice in our ears. Those that are humble or meeked before God, he doesn't leave them to the wolves. If you meek yourself to God, even if you have a strong will, even if you have a, a, a strengths and abilities and talents, when you meek those things to God, he will make you a child of God, an inheritor of God. Blessed the meek. James 2.5, listen, my beloved brethren, people I love, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Part of being meek before God is to love God. We can want the world, but we're not going to inherit the world. We're just going to inherit the wind. We can want the Lord and we inherit the earth. We get it all. And that's the switch off. Frankly, for me, this is kind of freeing. When you have gifts and talents and you just give them to the Lord, you don't have to worry about the outcome of those gifts and talents. You really don't. And I think that that's the temptation, I think, sometimes for people in the ministry is they want all these great things to happen, but we, shouldn't want, we should just want the Lord's will to be done. And maybe those great things are just for us to take care of our family and our friends. Um, but maybe those things, that, when we're meek to God, he might send us out like he did Paul and thousands of people get saved. The point is being meek before God, not to have our own efforts go into it. Verse 6, it keeps getting progressive. <clears throat> if we're meek to God <laughs> and we are encouraging each other as a church to do that, like let's just let the Lord's will be done. Let's not put our own thing into it. When we coach each other to do that as a body, suddenly you look at the world and you see a lot of stuff that's messed up. Like we see abortion, we see pretty much the news, and what's going on around the world, we see believers getting slaughtered. We see in the Church of God, like in Nigeria, just this last week, another group of people were killed. In Afghanistan, people are being raped and then killed in front of their families. There is horrible stuff out there. At some point, I have nothing to offer you, Lord. I regret everything I've done, mourning. Lord, I'm just going to give you my life, meeking before God. I'm going to meek myself. Blessed those who hunger and thirst for life. Lord, I just want the world to be better. Right? Our heart starts to change when we've done the first three things. They're foundational to this. For they shall be filled. I'm going to explain why they're foundational because I think Satan uses this all the time. The word hunger first in the Greek is, again, a deep, profound hunger. This isn't just that we get an appetite for food. This has the sense of a spiritual hunger that goes much, much deeper, that cannot be satisfied. So there's a contrast or a kind of a nice literary thing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. The hunger here in the Greek is something that's impossible to fill. It's a hunger that goes deep, like a, a dog's kind of hunger, a wolf's hunger, right? There's a deep-seated hunger and want for something that never goes away. Psalm 119, 160. There's 160 verses, or did I just put a zero there? Are there 160 verses in Psalm 119? That thing's a monster. We won't do that in one week either then. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The righteousness we're looking for here is God's righteousness. And I think the Psalms does a great job of expressing that hunger and desire for wanting what God has for the earth. So in our failure to master sin... 
It leads to a love and adoration for purity. When we know how weak we are, we see how absolutely wonderful God is and how his righteousness is much, much better than what we have. In fact, it's one of the ways that we beat sin. Is the, the temptation for sin shows up and we start praying things like, Lord, I just want your purity. I'm tired of feeling like I fail all the time. Help me get through this because I want your purity. The hunger and thirst for righteousness becomes the number one tactic for beating the sin in our life and meeking ourselves before God. What Satan loves to do with this is he loves to take this desire for justice and turn it into looking at the world. And I think this is what's going on with a large segment of the American church right now. It's not about what we have. It's about wanting something that God has. Because that's the context of everything Jesus is talking about here. But Satan says, no, no, no. Look at the world and how unrighteous the world is. Look at how unpeaceful it is. Look at the lack of courage, loyalty, unity. And then take that stuff and you can make that change in the world. Go do it. But instead of abandoning ourselves from the world, realizing it has nothing to offer us, all Satan's doing is driving us right back to the world with a very Christian instinct, with something Jesus said we are going to have. But the hunger and thirst for righteousness, every other passage here is about the individual becoming a different person. Why would this one suddenly be about fighting for justice in the world? It's not about that. It's that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's like with Jesus with the woman at the well. I'm going to give you water that makes it so you never thirst again. Like you want something to be different in the world, start with you and change yourself. And it doesn't say the world shall be filled. It says the people that are hungering shall be filled in verse 6. So Zephaniah 2.3, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility, that it may be that, that it may be that you will be hidden in the day of your Lord's anger. The reason we want righteousness is because we're tired of letting God down. So that doesn't mean I'm out protesting on the street corners. It really doesn't. It means I'm out inviting people to the kingdom on the street corners. And that's a really different way to do this. The idea that we can get holiness on this earth is a lie straight from Satan. So when we see anger, we hunger for peace. When we see fear, we hunger for courage. When we see presumptive sin, we hunger for humility. When we see division in the church, we thirst for unity in the church. When we see sin, we just want purity. And that result of us seeing the world differently makes us want God's world more. We hunger and thirst for it. God doesn't ever say that we can do righteousness on our own. He says that we can hunger and thirst for it. And I think part of that's the humility that comes with being poor of spirit, mourning, and being meeked, is that we have that humility already. We realize we're not the one to bring righteousness on the earth. Christ is the one that does that. And we stop taking his credit for doing good things. It goes to the Lord. We want something that we can't get in the fourth step. That's a frustration, right? C.S. Lewis, this is one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. In fact, it was one of the apologetic lines that helped me come into the faith. Thirst was made for water. Inquiry is made for truth. Creatures aren't born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. And I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are pining for something that doesn't exist right now. 
And that's because in this, until Jesus reigns, that's there. Again, the for they, they shall be filled is in the future tense. So it's not something that happens right now. So we get to live our whole life hungering and thirsting for something that doesn't exist. But Jesus promises that it does exist. He also promised he would rise from the dead, and he kept that promise. So he'll probably keep that one too. That idea of being filled there in the Greek is saturated, overflowing. So you got a hunger that's in the absolute, and then you got the word filled in its strongest sense of the term too. Jesus is contrasting those as he speaks. The audience at this point had to be going, huh? Like, what are you talking about? I'm hungry, but I'm overflowing with filledness? Like, he's, these contrasts that he's bringing up are confounding to people, which is why the rest of the Sermon on the Mount are examples of what he's talking about. So all of this sets up the next week as we go through the rest of the chapter. All right, so we love justice. We love what's good. We like what's noble, what's true. We realize God's the only one that gives it. We're frustrated by sinners. We're tempted to judge bad when we see bad. And the very next thing in verse 7 is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Once we recognize sin and we're beaten at ourselves, it, it, it takes a lot to be patient with it in other people because you want to point it out and jump on it. That's sin. I recognize that because you went through that yourself. And you want to point it out. And you want people to quickly figure it out and do it. But the Holy Spirit's got to do a work on them before that happens. That is not to say we accept sin in the church for sin's sake. The church should be a place we keep sacred. But it also means that we're not out running around trying to be legalists with people. That hurts people when we do it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That's not ironic. There's no contrast there. Mercy gets what it gives. Um, so... The idea is that the first four things are God giving us mercy. If we're poor in spirit, we're mourning, we're meeking, we're seeking justice, and God gives us all that stuff, it makes sense then that we're supposed to then start to give that to other people. We had nothing and God gave us everything. We were mourning and God helped us be comforted. So God gives us mercy in all of those things where we were trapped in sin. God then met us in that place. And there's a verse, but I couldn't find it. But if you can think of it, help me out. Um, but there is that, and it's in Romans somewhere. Um, but to give mercy is to trust that God will actually take care of all those just injustices that we see. So we're supposed to seek and hunger and thirst for righteousness, but it's not our job to get it. And that's a tough thing, because as humans, we want to take that will that we have and start moving as quickly as we can. And the idea is we're supposed to just be showing people mercy. Matthew 6, Matthew 7, Matthew 8 are all going to connect mercy to forgiveness. The Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. So God and Jesus, especially in his teaching, connects those two things all the time. We have to be doing that. Why did David the king get forgiven by God? That's a good question. He broke almost all the commandments, except for like he honored his parents pretty well. Um, but David, he was a mess. Why did he get mercy? And I think this is why. 1 Samuel 26, 9. David says about Saul, don't destroy him for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. The one thing David did is he showed mercy. And when he does all these things later in life, God shows him mercy too. He recognizes that there's something there. So our ability to be merciful with people and forgive people is not our ability to accept sin and call it good that's that's wrong but it is our ability to accept the human being that is a sinner from where they're at and 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 give them friendship and love and care and show them mercy 
Are we able to put ourselves in someone else's shoes? Can we forgive people when they wrong us? When they're blind and in the dark, can we forgive their blindness and be a light in their life? And and essentially, this blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. (laughs) I think immature believers use this with God all the time. In fact, kids use this with their parents. Please have mercy. But the idea there is that mercy doesn't get asked for. It's something that's given, right? The idea of mercy is that we actually are guilty. We actually have done wrong. And that wrong is not going to be punished because of mercy. And that's one of those things that we need to accept in other people. And we handle and we trust that God does the judgment. Vengeance is his. He owns it. And it's not our job to do that. So grace is giving unmerited favor to somebody. Mercy is to withhold merited punishment. They deserve it. But you're just not going to give it. When we start to get merciful with other people, we realize that something changes in our life. And I honestly think for a lot of believers, if Satan can snatch you away before you get to the mercy part of your life, you never really get to see God active in your life. Verse 8, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. You can repent, you can be poor of spirit, you can mourn, you can be stuck in the mire, for years of your Christian life and never really see God move and shake in the world around you. And that's a tragedy because God wants to be doing that, but he's not really going to be active in people's lives if they haven't worked on that purity thing and done what he's asked them to do. That compliance, that meekness, that heart that matches God's heart because God wants righteousness, we want righteousness. Our wills start to align. Another step beyond that is this idea of a pure heart. We can be merciful to people just because verse 7 says to, but you can also be merciful to people because you want something for it. That's not a pure heart. So again, our sinful nature kicks up because we start showing mercy, but then when we want something for it or some benefit for it, that's called selfishness, and it's not good to do that. So I'm just going to forgive and not deal with anybody at any time, and that's not a pure heart either because we should acknowledge sin and help people move past it. Um, pure heart here in the Greek means a straightness or a clarity or an honesty to it because pure of heart can be lost in just Christianese sometimes. It means straightness. Sin pollutes us. God wants us to do this in humility because that comes first progressively. But when we do good just to be seen, that's evil. Uh, And it challenges our motive. Why are we doing good things? Why are we acting on behalf? Why are we doing ministry? And if we do ministry out of a place of wanting some reward from God, it's not the right reason. We do ministry because we've given up on trying to do it ourselves. We love the Lord and there's a need there and we do it because it needs to get done. Shall see is another future tense, but seeing God is the consequence of purity in our hearts. And we'll never be perfect. Like, I get that theological concept. But when we start to live the way Jesus is talking about here, like, this had to blow his listeners away. When we start living that way, to be clear, we start seeing God everywhere. And you know Christians like this. Like, they go for a walk and they see God in creation. Look at what God's done. You go, you go to church and you see the meek people in church just ministering to one another, and you go, wow, praise the Lord. Look at what you're doing amongst multiple people. It's not just me. 
Um, we go to the Word of God and we read the Word and we see God speaking through the pages because look at what he's put together for us. Look at how perfect this thing is. When we live that way, our hearts start to change and we know we didn't change them. I used to be blind, but now I see. And there's a transition with the purity of heart when sin's just not even tempting to you anymore. Like you're not interested in that garbage because you recognize the death that comes with it and the mourning in your heart is still present. So we, our hearts change. Instead of wanting that, we want this. And we keep going towards God and aligning with God's will. And that change in our heart is not done because of our will. We didn't change it because we tried and we couldn't do it. So we turn to God and say, thank you for what you've done. That's purity of heart. And it's the focus for the rest of the chapter, in fact, the rest of the book of Matthew. It is not the actions or words of believers, but the heart of believers that God cares about. He sees the heart. Now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, for I know in part, but then I shall know as I am known. The goal isn't to get rid of the glass. It's to clear it as much as possible before we meet God face to face. We want purity of heart because we want to see God. So that idea that's there. Uh, in this, this idea that in our fallen nature, there's always some degree of fogging to seeing God, that's like good, right? Don't we want a God that's better than us, that we should appeal to? So when you deal with an atheist and they just don't see it, they don't see the word of God as holy, why should we expect that of them? They have no purity of heart. They can't see anything. They're absolutely blind and our heart towards them should be one of pity. Sorry you're living such a boring life. Right? What a horrible way to go through life is to think you're going to just be worm food on the other end. Um, but great peace has those who love God's law and nothing makes them stumble. Psalm 119, 165. Um, oh wait, that's the next one. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Again, peacemaker here is not um, you know, Barack Obama shaking hands with Middle Eastern leaders. That's not the, this isn't national peacemaking or civic peacemaking. All of this has been about the Christian and the believer and the disposition they should have. The only peace that's relevant is our peace with God. That suddenly we're not wrestling with God like Jacob anymore. We're walking with God like Paul and Peter and the disciples. That's the point. That we're not embarrassed when we pray. But there's a lot between repent and peacemaker that we kind of grow through as believers before we get to that point where we're not ashamed anymore. We still hold on to our mourning and our poor of spirit. That doesn't go away. But we can pray to the Lord knowing and having assurance of salvation because we've already seen the change he's made in our own lives. So we can trust that he's going to keep doing that. He wouldn't change us if he didn't want us. Right? So blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God or children of God. The word peace here, we all know it in the Hebrew, is shalom. Uh, and Matthew uses shalom there. It's the presence of the good. It's not stopping things that are bad. So to make peace is to bring about good things. When somebody says shalom to you, they're wishing God's good things in your life. We want all the things that God has to offer to be there. Blessed is this, blessed. We want all those blessings in your life, shalom. So far, there's poor spirit, mourning, making, hungering, mercifying, and then purity. And then when you get those things as rich attributes and blessings in your life, you get a peace or all the good things of God start to flow. And this isn't about getting a new Lamborghini. 
This is about spiritual issues. The term here is not earthly. It's spiritual. It's this much larger, more important thing. So peace is the outcome of God using his children, personally, relationally, maybe civically, uh, to bring about the presence of good things in our life. I keep going to Acts 2.42. The disciples continued in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Those are good things in our life. Peacemakers. We make those good things happen in our life because we commit ourselves to what God has. Satan loves, I think, to use this one too. In the same way he used hungering for righteousness, Satan wants us to take this verse and then look at the world that we're in and think we need to go into that world and make peace. But the, that's contrary to the Word of God. The Bible says that there will be no peace out there until Jesus returns. So you're trusting that you can go make a peace in a space the Bible said not to do that. I don't think this is contradictory. I think that's how Satan twists this. If you love peace so much, then go fight for it. Think of the lie in that, fighting for peace. It doesn't work that way. None of these things are civic. These are all about our own spiritual state. This got people mad. Satan used this in Jesus' generation. The people that wanted the kingdom of God got really upset with Jesus because he wasn't planning to overthrow the Romans. He didn't look at the world as the problem. He looked at our hearts as the problem. And that's just so tough for people because everything the world does is to put their problems in front of our face. Turn on a TV for five minutes and you will have the world putting its problems in front of your face. Click on the radio and they'll pump their stuff at you again and again and again. And it's not what God wants us focused on. And that's the part that drove people crazy with Jesus. He wouldn't fight. But you don't bring peace about by fighting. You bring peace about by being peaceful. So Satan loves to have us Think of peacemaker as that person who steps in between two people and says, no, 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 you shall both stop doing things. Um, first of all, that rarely happens in life. So if you're waiting for that moment, it may never come where you see something and you can step in and be a peacemaker. Um, it is not about other people having personal grudges. That's a lie from Satan. Peacemaking is about us reconciling ourselves to God. That's the ministry. And helping other people reconcile themselves to God. The peacemaking is about us leading people to Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, helping people find their way to the good things of God, for they shall be called sons of God. We're his children. We're the ones out doing the work. Not all Christians get to this point. In fact, that's got to be frustrating for Christians that do. Because you're like, why won't you people move? Like, we want to tell the world about Jesus. Why are you sitting on your sofa? How are you going to work when you're asking where the couch is? But it's a very frustrating thing for believers. But again, this comes after mercy. We need to know that God has to do a work on their heart before they're motivated to do those things that we get so much blessings out of. Like we get to be sons of God and daughters. I think that's an inclusive word there. Um, all things are of God. 2 Corinthians 5.8 All things are of God who's reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That's not Black Lives Matter reconciliation or, or reparations reconciliation. That's a reconciliation that we have a ministry to show people what that looks like to people, that we can be reconciled to God. Biblically, there's only one reconciliation that's ever talked about anywhere in the Bible, and that's between us and God and making that right. So when we force people to reconcile, uh, it just leads to frustration and hate and war. It, that's all it does. Peace has to come after purity. 
That's the other piece. Like these are progressive. If you're not pure of heart, then you're peacemaking. You, you could get greedy in that and you could be doing it for the wrong reasons. So Matthew in a couple chapters is going to say, uh, well, Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 5, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you'll see more clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There has to be purity before we can talk to our brother or sister. Once there is purity, we can talk to our brother and sister. So Satan loves to use that. Don't talk about my speck when you got your own specks. But that's a conditional thing, like you're supposed to actually deal with your own specks and then you are supposed to deal with your brothers. You're supposed to be a peacemaker. But you can't be a peacemaker when you got sin in your life because people just look at that and go, who are you to tell me how to live? You don't even have this managed. So they, are, they, do, they do require the previous one to do this, I think, the right way. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, don't avenge yourselves. Rather give place to wrath, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. If we have peace with God, we have peace with anything that happens today or tomorrow. We're just at peace with it. Whatever you're going to do, Lord, I'm ready to do it. <laughs> Which leads us to verse 10. Um, sons of God, back in verse 9, are those that are aligned with them. Okay, so this is a, the, to say sons of God is not unique to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus uses it with James and John and calls them the sons of, you all with me? The th sons of thunder, thank you. Um, so it's a phrase that says you're exhibiting an attribute of this. You're sons of thunder. You guys are like thunder. Or you're sons of meerkats. It means you're like meerkats. When you're sons of God, it means you're like God. You're doing what God does, which is to bring people into his presence and help them reconcile with him. So if we grow in purity, we have increased peace in our salvation, we get that relationship with God, we can see God clearly and we know the heart of God, we know the kind of mercy we need to have with God, and we're still poor in spirit, we're still mourning, we're still meeking, we're not putting ourselves above other people, we're actually coming under people. So... Now there's seven attributes. That's divine completion. It's finished. So you could end with verse 9. And that's, I think for the Christian life, getting through verse 9 is great. Like you're on your way to, you're on your way to heaven at the beginning. You had me at blessed, right? It, so the getting the kingdom happens up first, but there's things God would love to bless you with in your life beyond just repentance. There's more to the Christian walk than just repent. The kingdom of God is here. And we want all those things. Verse 10, we don't want, right? So up through verse 9, everything we like, and there's seven of those attributes that we get from those kinds of things, and that's wonderful. Then you get to this last one, and it's not for everybody, as verse 9 was not for everybody. As verse 8, not everybody grows and matures. And that's sad, but if we grow and mature and we help people reconcile to the kingdom of God, Satan hates our guts and anything but talking about the name of Jesus, right? So Satan's going to now suddenly the world we walked away from starts to come towards us, right? The direction changes. Instead of us pursuing the world, the world starts to get after us for pursuing the kingdom. And that's natural and it's beautiful. And we shouldn't be afraid of that because it's the result of all these other blessings. It's a good thing. And there's a difference. I, I'm going to separate 10 and 11 because I think they're very, very different ideas. And I'll show you why. A lot of people just think 11 is expanding on 10. I don't think it is at all. Not only because of Matthew's numbers. It's going to add up to 12 items. I don't think that's an accident. 
Um, but blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. Apparently the purity of heart, the mercy, the purity, the peacemaking is actually becoming righteous. So we hunger and thirst for it and then God actually gives it to us. We become fairly righteous people. I'm not tempted to smack people in the face. Like, like that's not even appealing to me. And certain kinds, of, like we become more righteous in our walk with God. And for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We get the same thing we got at the first step. We're not any better than people that are just poor in spirit, the broken, the hurting. We're no better than they are. I love that that book ends there. But we're persecuted for righteousness sake. The nature of persecution is the question here. There's not much to interpret. It is exactly what we think it is in the English. It's other people coming at us, right, because of our righteousness. So we have all this peace, and we humbly live at peace with God. See verse 10. But that peace means that we're okay with just serving the Lord. We were just talking about this before. We don't necessarily follow what the world demands and makes threats of. We just ignore it. And that really gives, we're confident in our relationship with God. We don't need our job. We don't need people in our life. We, they need God, but we don't need them anymore. And you honestly, spiritually, emotionally, are free from that. And amen, what freedom. Like, I am free from the burden of sin. And, and I feel great about that. But the immediate consequence of that is that people react to your righteousness. Okay, example. You go into the lunchroom at work, and a group of people are telling a dirty joke, and you walk into the room, and they stop telling the dirty joke. Why? Why do they care that you just walked into the room? Or better yet, you're telling a dirty joke, and your mom walks in the room. And you stop telling the dirty joke, partially because spiritually you know it's wrong. And somebody walks in the room who's actually living right, and it means that your living wrong is not excusable. Hi, Bible studiers. God bless your time uh, in the Word and in the Beatitudes. The second half of this podcast I'm going to post as a separate podcast so we keep our time spots about the same. Uh, if you just click to the next one, you'll hear the rest of this teaching. God bless. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.